Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Labor is a powerful thing. Like this country was built off slave labor. And this Juneteenth, a day commemorating when a group of enslaved people in Texas learned they were finally freed from slavery two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the most radical labor unions in the Bay Area is taking a symbolic stand in shutting down all maritime ports along the West Coast. Today, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union will cut off a key part of the economy in solidarity with protests for George Floyd. And it turns out, anti-racism has long been a crucial part of the union's work. Workers' greatest leverage is at the point of production. That's because when you stop working, production stops and you get everyone's attention. Today, the important role dock workers play in holding the police and powerful accountable. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Dock workers, because of the nature of their work, have a proclivity, you'd say, a tendency to both collective action, but also sometimes anti-racism. Peter Cole's a professor of history at Western Illinois University. He also wrote a book called Dock Worker Power that talks about how Bay Area longshore and warehouse unions have promoted labor rights and social justice movements for decades. So I think there's several factors that explain why dock workers sort of essentially immediately started to fight against racism. Right? One is pragmatic. If we aren't going to get everyone in, some workers might break our strike by taking the jobs. Right? A second is ideological. Um, where workers, especially anti-capitalists, socialists, communists, Trotskyists, Wobblies, and others, were committed to a different society where race and ethnicity would be less meaningful. 
third factor in the industry really is that uh, these workers understand that sort of we are strong because we are internationally minded. Every day, dock workers meet people from other countries, moving cargo in and out. And so what we have is a sort of a combination of factors. Going back to the 1840s, San Francisco was always the most important city, but also the most important port, the gateway to the Pacific, and of course before the Panama Canal, even the connection to the Atlantic. San Francisco was increasingly uh, diverse, although often people didn't get along, right? Like uh, the treatment of Chinese are the most obvious example. There were very few African Americans in the Bay Area. But some of those black people, black men at that time, all men, um, worked on the waterfront and had been used as strikebreakers after World War I. Strikebreakers, known as scabs, were called to replace workers who took to the picket lines. Dock workers were demanding shorter workdays and collective bargaining. And in 1934, they joined a general strike in San Francisco that lasted 83 days. Two months into the strike, after the shipping companies attempted to open the port with scab labor, the violence began. All told, two were killed, more than a hundred injured. Several of the victims were innocent bystanders. It was to be a major turning point for the strikers. And so what happened was that radical dock workers said, look, we have to be anti-racist, right? Um, either we fight together or we fall separately. In the days following that bloody Thursday, one voice was heard above all the rest. It belonged to a young Australian seaman named Harry Bridges. He was an Australian immigrant who had already learned and seen the world, India, China, the United States, and seen racism in his home country of Australia, the treatment of Aborigines, as well as actually witnessed poverty and racism in multiple countries. And that's why I say it's not coincidence that maritime workers are often more international and hmm. often more politicized, because they've seen more. And so in the 30s, during the so-called big strike, when the entire West Coast, every port on the West Coast, um, went out on strike for about six weeks, the leaders of that strike, um, including Harry Bridges, who basically committed to anti-racism, it's also a union that recognizes that from time to time, it's got to stand up and fight for certain things that might necessarily only be wages, hours, and conditions. Civil liberties, racial equality, and things like that. Radical dock workers went to black people, especially in the East Bay, but, and basically said, look, this is a new deal, right? We want black people to be in our union. We will treat you equally, but we don't want you to break these strikes. Among the thousands of black men joining dock work was Clarence Thomas's grandfather. I am a third generation longshore worker, retired. My grandfather started working on the waterfront in 1944. He was a Creole from Louisiana. My dad started working in 1963, my uncle in 1965, and I started on the waterfront in 1985. What kinds of stories did you hear growing up about what it was like to be a longshoreman in the 40s when your grandfather was getting into it? My grandfather, Lee Edwards, he would bring longshore workers home for lunch. My uh, grandparents lived in West Oakland. They were just minutes away from the port. My grandmother was a gourmet cook. And it was there that I first heard the name Harry Bridges. Harry Bridges 
who was the founding member of the ILWU, he and other leftists and some of the members of the Communist Party that were leading the rank and file strike committee, they realized that they couldn't win the strike without appealing to the black community not to work as scabs. And in Bridges' own words, he said, we're offering Negroes, which was the term of the days, a new deal. If you support us on the picket line, we will work for your inclusion on the waterfront. He kept that promise. And as a result of that, San Francisco, the home of Local 10, is the only predominantly African-American longshore local on the West Coast. Right. This beginning to the Longshoremen's Union in the Bay Area laid the groundwork for what would become one of the most radical anti-racist unions in the country. Longshore workers in 1984 refused to handle South African cargo for 11 straight days against the apartheid system of South Africa. At a dockside rally this morning, longshoremen and supporters repeated their feelings about the reports of life in South Africa, which they regard as oppressive. It's got the blood of the courageous youth in Soweto that stood up against the vicious, racist apartheid regime. The longshoremen are saying that this is a matter of conscience to them. There are plenty of examples of the union's anti-racist work in the Bay Area, including against police violence. One of the most memorable was the strike after a BART police officer shot and killed Oscar Grant in 2009. Black people represent the most oppressed and exploited sector of the multinational working class in this country. And so when we see the death of um, George Floyd, uh, Richard Brooks, um, we understand the legacy of slavery and how black people were considered three-fifths of a human being. And then we notice how the police respond to blacks, the encounters between the police. But essentially, what we have to understand is that this is a working class issue. That brings us to today, Juneteenth. Professor Cole says it's Local 10 based in San Francisco and Local 34 in Oakland that drew up resolutions to get the entire West Coast caucus to strike on Juneteenth. When the ILWU stops work uh, this Friday, Juneteenth, it will be the first time in the history of the United States that a union has stopped work or struck for Juneteenth. All 29 ports on the West Coast of the United States are going to shut down for eight hours, right? Juneteenth, of course, is a holiday that a lot of Americans, I'd hazard to say most Americans, have never heard of. Um, now, obviously, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and of course, with the provocation of uh, the president for saying he wants to go to Tulsa, where a horrible race riot occurred in 1921, right. around that time, um, the fact that dock workers are essentially taking back this holiday um, is sort of a fascinating convergence Right. Um, but I think the significance is that we have never as a country had a reckoning with 240 years of slavery. What does shutting down the port actually do? Billions of dollars, of course, come through the West Coast ports on a monthly basis, for better or worse. Most of the things that we consume are manufactured outside of the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if workers stop work, that actually interrupts the entire supply chain. So what message then do you think they're sending by doing this on Juneteenth? I think it's multiple messages. First and most obvious is that um, 
at the general level, Black Lives Matter, right? This is another example in this wave of protests in which Black people, but also many non-Black people, um, other people of color and white allies are saying enough is enough. More generally, it actually shows all people, whatever industry and wherever they are, that workers have potential power, right? And so these eight-hour symbolic strikes, do they have meaning? Well, the next day we'll get back to work. But it also actually sends a clear message to everyone. Wow, I could do that. What if I was in a union? Maybe I could command more power. Maybe that just means I get a raise, right? Maybe it means I have a safer workplace. Maybe it means right. I'm not discriminated on the job, right? Um, and so it's a multifold message. If you don't know why the barrier is so liberal, uh, if you don't know it has something to do with the long history, 80 plus years of this union, you actually don't know the barrier nearly as well as you think. Economic boycotts like this one led by the ILWU is a way to bring attention to police violence against black people. And oftentimes it's effective. That's because one thing powerful people in this country pay attention to is their own pocketbooks. To follow some of the Juneteenth marches, demonstrations, and celebrations, check out kqed.org. Thanks to Peter Cole, professor of history at Western Illinois University, also author of the book, Dock Worker Power. Also thanks to Clarence Thomas, retired leader of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10 and co-founder of the Million Worker March Movement. This episode was produced by Marisol Medina Cadena and Erica Cruz Guevara. Our editor is Alan Montecilio. KQED's leadership team is Jessica Placek, Erica Aguilar, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for us. We'll talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.